Good morning again. Morning. Can you a bit of feedback? Hopefully you'll hear me okay at the back over there. Am I clear enough? Good, good. Uh, good to be with you again up here sharing God's word. I hope you've had a wonderful week and you have a healthy appetite. A uh, healthy appetite, not from a, a physical point of view, but from the point of view of uh, wanting to hear God's word and understand it. So this morning, that's our aim. Our aim is to help you learn something new, to challenge all of us to live more for the Lord, to understand him better in our lives and to glorify him more. So I'm going to ask you to that end to open up your, your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, verse 19, and we'll read to verse 23 this morning. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 to 23. Read along with me. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your, uh, your blessing and the salvation which you've provided for us. We pray that, Father, you would bless us now with your wisdom, your knowledge and your grace as we seek to understand your word. Father, that you would use me to that end, Father, is my desire. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. Lord, help us uh, to accept this word. Help us to understand it and help us to live it in our lives. Father, that this world may see the light that comes from you, but also that they would turn to you and be saved and that you would be glorified in our lives. We thank you once again for this time. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For those of you who have been coming to Wednesday evening prayer services, you would recognise this particular passage that I've read out to you because we've been working our way through the book of Acts. And as we're working our way through the book of Acts, we're seeing the way God was dealing with the early church. So as the, as the church was just forming and starting, we see that um, the challenges that it was facing. We see the, the role that the apostles actually had during that time. And they had a very important role, apostles. And, and by the way, there aren't any apostles today. Um, to be an apostle, you had to have seen Jesus, been sent by Jesus and been aware and, and witnessed his resurrection as well. Um, there are no apostles today. They died out within the first hundred years of the church. They had an incredibly important uh, role to play, though, because the word of God had not been completed. So the people in the churches had to turn to the apostles who were the designated teachers of God's word. If they weren't sure about a particular doctrine, it was the apostles you would go back to to clarify things. The word of God was completed around 90 AD and after that we find no more apostles. In fact, we find a lot of other things change as well. But the book of Acts is such an amazing book. It's, it's, it's a very fast-paced book. It's a lot of information in it. And when we, when we began reading this particular uh, book, on Wednesday evenings, we thought, oh, I thought to myself, we'll try and get through a chapter a, no, a night. No chance. Um, not with the group that we've got anyway. Um, we find ourselves stuck in particular places. I've been trying to get through chapter three for about three weeks now. <laughs> Don't point at Anthony. He's part of the problem, but he's also part of the solution. Um, we, we get ourselves in these discussions that just go in amazing places and I, I love it. I love it when, when Christians want to know more and more and understand how everything fits together in the Bible and that should be our aim. Our aim should be to want to know God more and to understand his word more. So wanting and asking questions is always a good thing. Remind yourself always, it's, not, it's never wrong to ask a question. 
Do you understand that? It's not wrong to ask a question. If you have something in your mind that doesn't make sense about God's word, there is an answer. So allowing that not to make sense for a long time is what's wrong. If you let it go, if something doesn't make sense to you in your mind about God's word without asking the, the question, always ask. There are plenty of, of men and women in this church who know God's word and can answer your questions if you are struggling with God's word. But on Wednesday evenings, we've been going through this particular uh, book. And uh, it's, this particular passage we've read contains prophecy in it. Okay? Now, prophecy is something where God has given a message to someone who then makes a prediction about something that's going to happen in the future before it actually, before it actually occurs. And the Bible contains about 30% prophecy. About a third of the Bible speaks about things that were yet to come and much of it's actually been fulfilled. And we're going to look at some of that today. But that's what makes this book that we hold in our hands so amazing. There is no other book like it. And part of the reason God gives us prophecy is that he wants us to actually trust him. Because if something was written a thousand years before and then it comes to pass a thousand years later exactly the way God says it, his goal for that is that we would trust him. Because if he knows the future, if we can trust him with the future, then we can trust him with our own souls, can't we? So let's look at verse 19 here. It says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. We see that this passage begins with the offer of salvation. Now we spoke about the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the old covenant or the agreement between God and man, which was based on uh, the laws that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. And then we have a new agreement between God and man, which is the, the agreement that God offered through Jesus Christ, his son, which is the New Testament that Jesus sealed with his own blood. So when it says there, repent ye therefore and be converted, that's what it's asking us to do. It's saying, change your mind. Repentance simply means to do a, to do a 180 degree turn. And, and while you, where once you're walking in this direction, you think to yourself, no, I'm actually going the wrong way. This is wrong. I need to go the other way. So repentance simply means to change your mind and agree with God about the way he sees it. Because people have a tendency to see things their own way. Everyone does. It's, it's amazing when you watch election time and when you see people arguing on the, on the TV who are liberal and labour and left and right and all these different things. Have you noticed that they never make a mistake? They always stick to their guns. They're always right. It doesn't matter how many things, how many discussions take place. It's funny that they never find any meeting ground in the middle. And this is man's problem. Man's problem is we always have to stick to our guns. Even if we're wrong, why is it that man, even when he's wrong, continues to insist that he's right? And this is what God asks us to do. God asks us to genuinely look at our lives and say, look at your life. Understand where you are. Let me explain to you what I see. And we often can't see ourselves properly anyway. But repentance means that I finally look at myself and I acknowledge how God sees me. And I agree with him. Because the first step in becoming a Christian, the first step in receiving this new agreement is to acknowledge your own sin. And that is the hardest part of the whole deal. Because God's word says that we're all sinners. God's word says that we have all fallen. God's word says that there is nothing good in me that I can bring to God and say, here I am, look at what I've got. The Bible simply says that there is no one who is good enough to get into heaven. This is the exact opposite teaching that the world will give you. This is the exact opposite message that every religion, every philosophy and everyone else in the world will say. Every, every other philosophy and every other religion in the world tells you that if you try hard enough and if you follow these sets of rules, if you do enough good things, then God will weigh the balance at the end of your life. And if your good outweighs your bad, you can get into heaven. The Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says it doesn't matter how many, how many rules you apply to your life, how hard you try, 
How many things you do, the Bible says, you aren't good enough to get into heaven. It's a bit like a murderer who, who murders someone and then says, oh, I'm going to, I've made up for it because I've, I've given money to the poor. And the judge will say, hang on a sec. Regardless of how much money you've given to the poor, how good a driver you've been your whole life, how many other rules you've kept, you've broken that rule and you need to pay for it. And this is the message of the, of the Bible. The Bible says that every man has broken God's commandments and is destined for hell. Regardless of whether they believe it or not, hell exists. The Bible says it very clearly. People love to quote Jesus, but he talked about hell almost more than any other subject. Go figure. People say that Jesus is a, is a wonderful guy who taught love and peace and all those types of things. You know something? He warned about hell because he knew it, because he created it. And he doesn't want anyone to go there because, because the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. And the only reason people will be in, in the lake of fire one day is because they've chosen to be there. Because they've chosen to reject the offer that God has made them. So the Bible says here, repent and be therefore and be converted. Change your mind. And believe in Jesus Christ. Receive that message. Receive the offer that he's made for you. Because it's the best offer you will ever, ever get. In, on this side of life and the next. There is no other offer that compares to this offer. This is exchanging all the rubbish and all the sin and all the problems that I am. And saying, I'll, I'll give you all that. And you're going, I'm going to exchange it for what? I'm going to exchange it. For a perfect life? I mean, you're going to absolve me of all my sins, past, present and future? You're going to give me the righteousness of Christ? So when you see me, you see your only, you see your son? Now that is an offer that is too good to refuse. The only reason people refuse that offer is their own foolish pride. And if you insist on trying to get into heaven your own way, you will not get into heaven. You will find yourself always lacking. So it says there, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, there is peace and refreshment that comes from God. The greatest peace a person can know is when they walk hand in hand with God when they walk side by side with him, when they know that regardless of what the world throws at them, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of what people may criticise them about, regardless even of their own life, they know that they're going to heaven. That's why the early Christians who were thrown to lions, lit up as torches, tortured in the most unbelievable ways, would sing when they died. Can you even imagine that? Can you imagine while being torn apart by lions that they'd be standing there in the middle of a coliseum like the MCG? Imagine the MCG full of people and you are thrown into the middle of, that, of the MCG and lions are turned loose in there. Would you be smiling? Would you be singing? Would you be ready to meet your maker? These people were. And the only logical reason they could rejoice and sing is because they knew where they were going. Because the door they were about to step through, they knew without a shadow of a doubt who was waiting for them on the other side. And it was their saviour. Too many Christians have, don't have this hope. Too many people in this world don't have anything like that. They're not sure about where they're going. But if there's anything that Christianity teaches us, it's that you can be sure. And there's a peace that comes from knowing where, you go, where you're going. If you don't have that peace, if you don't know where you're going, you can have it. Jesus offers it. He is the Prince of Peace. Salvation is offered to all of mankind. And it's received by repenting, by acknowledging that you're a sinner and believing in Jesus Christ and receiving that offer. It offers a full pardon from sin and times of peace and refreshing. And the Bible says in verse 20 over here, it says, And he shall send Jesus Christ 
which was before which before was preached unto you. This is the Apostle Peter speaking to after Jesus has risen, after Jesus ascended into heaven, he's, he's speaking to the Jews and he's saying, if you believe it, God will send Jesus. Hang on, see, Jesus has already come. But Peter says, he will send Jesus who was preached to you before. God is going to send Jesus back to this earth. That's the next hope that we have, is that God will send his son back to this earth. And the Bible says that he will return to this earth in like manner as he left it. Do you know how he left this earth? He just rose up. And the Bible says that that his disciples were there and they watched him and he just started rising up. And, he, and as, as he disappeared into the clouds, they just were standing there looking like this. And all of a sudden, an angel stood there next to them and said, what are you looking up in the sky for? What are you, what are you just looking up in an empty sky for? He goes, and this angel said, this Jesus who you've seen leave in this manner will come back in the same way. And where did he leave? The Bible says, he left from the Mount of Olives. And the Bible says, in Malachi, Zechariah, it says that he, when he lands, his feet are going to hit the Mount of Olives. And when his feet hit the Mount of Olives, mind you, that was his return was predicted before he left. His return. It says that when his feet land again on the Mount of Olives, it says it will be split in two. And when he comes back, it's going to be an interesting time. Because look at verse 21. It says, Whom the heaven must receive until the time of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So where is Jesus now? The Bible says that he is in heaven. He has been received into heaven until the time when he comes back to restore all things. He will return as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We often, we've we've had these two pictures over here for years and years now. Okay? And they're here for a specific reason. Because that signifies when he first came. That signifies when he comes back. When he first came, the Bible says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't even defend himself and argue. While they, while they cooked up Trump charges against him, they actually, he actually stood in front of Caesar and in front of, in front of the, the council over there. They made up these things against him. It was all false. And then they found a way to actually kill him. So the Jews actually found a way using Roman law to crucify him because he was getting in their way. He was threatening their little monopoly. So they found a way, and the Bible says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he became a sacrificial lamb for us. But the Bible says that when he returns, he's coming back like that. That animal does not allow itself to be taken very easily. That animal, when he comes back, the Bible says that he comes back as a king of kings and lord of lords, will not be a happy time for many people in this world. If you watch it in the States, there are plenty of people after the election over there who are, but essentially you've got half a country who's upset after the election that Trump won and half a country that's happy. When he comes back, there will be some that are happy, absolutely ecstatic that he's back. There will be plenty who are not happy because when he comes back, he doesn't come back simply to be the meek, mild-mannered prophet. The Bible says when he comes back, he will come back as the King of kings and Lord of lords and he will destroy the the armies of the world who oppose him. The Bible says there will be a slaughter on that day. So the second coming is a dreadful time for much of the world, but is a, a blessed time for many in the world. Now, there are a multitude of prophecies in the Bible about Jesus' return. There were plenty of prophecies in the Bible in the Old Testament before he was born about his first coming and also the second coming. And many of those prophecies have been fulfilled. From the early chapter of Genesis 
to the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. Fully one third of the Bible was given by God as a prophecy about something in the future. He predicted something in the future that would happen. Things told by God of what would happen in the future and the vast majority of these prophecies about what would happen, how they would happen, when they would happen, who would be around and all the circumstances, most of these prophecies revolve around one person. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Malachi, most of the prophecies in the Bible revolve around one person. (coughs) They continually talk about one person. And it's the person we know as Jesus Christ. This person transcends all of time. He sits outside of time. He's the one the whole Bible was written about. It's all about him. It's not about us. Don't Don't get this wrong. The Bible was written about us. It was written for us, but it was written about him, that we would come to know him. And Jesus is the manifestation of God in this world. So there are hundreds of prophecies. Some have estimated that there are over 300 prophecies specifically about Jesus in the Bible. 300! Which verify the consistency and the faithfulness of the Word of God. They speak about the absolute miraculous nature of the Bible as distinct from any other book in the world. There there is no other book that pinpoints that gives you the specific details about things that will occur hundreds and thousands of years in the future as this book does. There is no other book like it. And if you have a rational and objective mind, if you read all these prophecies and predictions, you have to admit there's something funny going on here. You can't just say there's a fluke. Let me give you an example. There are eight prophecies. I'll just mention eight of them for you. One, the Bible says hundreds of years before, at least 700 years before he was born, the Bible says he would be born in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. The Bible says that he would have a predecessor who would come before him to prepare his way. Who was the one that happened to be there at the same time preparing the way for Jesus? A guy called John the Baptist. It says that he would enter Jerusalem riding a donkey. That's what happened. It says that he would be be betrayed by a friend. He was betrayed by one of his disciples. It says that he would be be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Specifically, 30 pieces of silver, it was written before. Hundreds of years before that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. What was he betrayed for? 30 pieces of silver. It then goes on to say that with those 30 pieces of silver, they would be used to buy a potter's field. Do you know what Judas did with the money? He bought a potter's field. The Bible says that although innocent, he would be silent and not defend himself at his trial. That's exactly what happened. And the Bible even went on to predict how he would be killed. Now, in the book of the Psalms, the Bible says that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Now, can I ask you a question? What type of killing instrument, what type of, of, uh, of, um, of murder pierces hands and feet? Because the Romans weren't around during those days. The Romans weren't crucifying people during those days. Yet it predicted that his hands and his feet would be pierced and he would die on a tree. Is there any better description about what happened to Jesus? More than a thousand years before he was crucified on a cross. Now, eight, just eight, the probability of one man fulfilling just those eight of fulfilling all those eight prophecies is one by ten to the one in one by ten to the power of twenty-eight. Now, if any of you know your odds, if any of you know about a probability, one chance in ten to the power of twenty-eight is one. If if you had one chance in ten, you've got a a small chance, isn't it? If you had one chance in a hundred, you have a much smaller chance. If you have one chance in a million. You've got a tiny chance. Now, if you had one chance in one with 28 zeros after it, tell me what chance you've got of someone fulfilling those eight prophecies by chance. 
it's zero. So if it takes, if the odds are that small to fulfill just eight, how do you explain 300 prophecies fulfilled in one person? There is nothing else in the world like this. And this is what the world will not tell you. Just imagine for a moment the number, the odds of one person fulfilling 300 prophecies that were said about him before. There is no other explanation other than the author of this particular book, this book that we love, is altogether supernatural. And this author is so powerful, is so intelligent, that he can actually know what will happen in the future to the minutest detail. And he gave us that information so we could trust him. Because if you can believe, if you can fathom, if you can understand that this God actually knows the end from the beginning and you say, that's the one I have to trust with everything. Because if he knows my end, if he knows the world's end from the beginning, he's the one I have to trust with the message. Because I don't know tomorrow what's going to happen and neither does anyone else in this world know what's going to happen tomorrow. And if they tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, they're lying. They don't know. But there is one who knows everything. And he's the one we are to believe. He's the one we trust. And so if I can trust him with that, then I can trust him with the message that he gave me in that Bible. And that is, believe in my son and you'll receive eternal life. If I can trust him with those, then I'm going to trust him with that message for my life. Which brings us to the final two verses in this passage that we read. Another prophecy made by someone known the world over, known and recognised by every, almost every religion and creed, believers, atheists, east, west, north and south. The name Moses, like Jesus, is almost universally recognised in this world as a man, as the man who led the Israelites out of Egypt. He too was a prophet, the Bible says. And Peter, in this passage, in the book of Acts, quotes Moses. He actually quotes him. Why? Because the Jews knew the life of Moses very, very well. And Peter said, Peter wanted him to understand that Moses predicted Jesus as well. Moses was the one they need to be listening to. Look at verse 22. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Peter was quoting Moses. Turn back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. Now, God has told Moses to share this with the people, with the Jews. Now, this is a long way before, before Jesus ever came on the scene, a long time before. Deuteronomy 18, 18 says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee. So God is saying to Moses, I'm going to raise a prophet up for them, like you, from among themselves, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. That's a, that's a, that's a nice way of saying I'm going to require justice from him. He's going to have to pay for it. The Jews throughout all ages have looked for this coming prophet. In your Bibles, the word prophet probably has a capital P on it. That's because that prophet is Jesus Christ. And according to Moses himself, this man would be a Jew. He would come from the Jews. God would speak through him. 
But there was also a warning that for all those who rejected the words that he spoke, that they would be judged for it. John chapter 3 verse 17 and 18 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18 says though, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There is a condemnation which comes from rejecting Jesus. What I'd like to do is look a little bit deeper into this, this thing about how Jesus is like Moses. It actually says, when, when, when Peter says um, or mentions this particular prophecy, it says that a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. In other words, like Moses, that God was going to send a prophet in the future who would be very much like Moses. So I spent a bit of time looking at and comparing Jesus and Moses. And the more I looked, the more I found. So I can't give them to you all. But it's an amazing study. When you compare how Jesus' life compares to Moses' life, there are amazing parallels. So God was telling the Jews, saying, you know, in the future, look for the one who is similar to Moses. Look for this prophet who comes in my name, who speaks my words, and has circumstances that are similar to, to Moses. Let's have a look at some of these comparisons. In his circumstances, I'll, we won't go to every scripture passage, but I'll remind you of some of them, and some, most of them you should know already. In circumstances, both Jesus and Moses were born under oppressive foreign rule. Most of you would know that Moses was born in Egypt. Egypt had a pharaoh at that particular time who didn't like the Jews very much. He saw them as a threat to himself and his power. They were multiplying too quickly. So Pharaoh's answer to this was to tell the midwives that if it's a boy, and if it's the first boy that's born to a thing, kill it. In other words, kill it in a way, maybe strangle it when the mother isn't looking, because he was afraid there were too many men coming up who were Jews. They were both, Jesus and, the, and Moses were, were both born under oppressive foreign rule. The Jews were living under the Egyptians with a pharaoh, okay, who was a king of the Egyptians. Jesus was born in a time of Roman rule and the Jews were living under Roman occupation. Okay? Both Jesus and Moses then had to be rescued from the murderous decree of two kings. As I've mentioned to you, Pharaoh chose to kill the firstborn of the, of the Jews to lower their numbers. Okay? It says in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, if you want to write it down for you as a reference, and Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. That was his second decree to kill the firstborn. The first one he gave to the midwives, and they didn't follow through. The second one, he said, I want them all cast into the river. Turn to Matthew chapter, chapter 2, verse 16. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Here we have a king. He's a Jewish king, not really Jewish. He's from a, from a different tribe. And he feels threatened by Jesus. He hears that the, the king of the Jews is, is about to be born. And there are some wise men who have come. And they've asked about where he might be. And he goes, oh, when you find him, let me know. Let me know, because I want to go and, and, uh, and give him a present as well. His present was probably a sword. So the wise men, when they found Jesus... They realised they weren't going to tell him because he had something planned. So it says in verse 16, it said that they just nicked off home. The Bible says in verse six, uh, Matthew 2, 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath. He was upset and sent forth, and look at this, slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had 
diligently inquired of the wise men. How's that for a decree? We worry about our, we worry about our government sometimes. Huh? But how about this for a decree from the king? I want all the kids, two years old and under, I want them slaughtered along all that coast. Just to make sure that he got Jesus. That's an amazing coincidence. They were both born under very similar circumstances and very similar decrees. The Bible then says that both Jesus and Moses were protected because they had godly parents who listened to what God wanted them to do. So we had Moses' parents and Moses' mother who put him on a raft. Do you know the story? Put him on the raft in the River Nile and, and, he, and he floated and he got saved as a result. And, and when it came to um, Jesus... Joseph and Mary were warned in a dream that they had to get out of there because Herod was coming with his soldiers. So they did. They followed the, the God and they went down to, the Bible says, Egypt for a while. And Jesus was saved. So same circumstance. Under oppressive rules, very, very evil um, uh, dictates. And then they got saved because they had, they had both had godly parents. Both Jesus and Moses were royalty. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household. He was treated like royalty. Jesus is royalty because he was descendant on both sides of his lineage. Both mother and father were descendants from King David. Jesus was brought gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh because the wise men recognised him as a king. Here's one that will throw you a bit. The Bible says Moses married a Gentile woman. Did you know that? The Bible says that he married an Ethiopian woman. It says in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. So Moses married an Ethiopian. His brother and his sister weren't too happy about that. They got upset with him and God says, You be quiet because... I'm, I'm with him. Jesus married a Gentile woman. No, it's not what you're thinking. But there's a bride who Jesus betrothed to. And that bride is not specifically Jewish. That bride is Gentile and Jewish mixed up as well. And that's the church. So they both married Gentile, Gentile women. The Bible says that Moses, when he went up to the mountain to receive the commandments of God, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Exodus chapter 34 verse 28 says, And he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, neither did he eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So Moses is up on a mountain talking with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And in Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 it says, And Jesus was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil when he fasted. How many days? 40 days and 40 nights. Are you starting to see a, a, a resemblance between these two? The Bible says in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. So Moses was the, one of the, if not the meekest man on the earth at that time. Yet we have here Jesus, who came like that, who was the ruler and the king of the universe but who allowed himself to be killed by the very people that he came to save. He could have snapped his finger and wiped the whole lot out, but he didn't. That's meekness for you. And Jesus himself says, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Both Moses and Jesus were very, very meek in nature. Both Jesus and Moses had a face-to-face -face relationship with God. Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 10 says, And there arose not a prophet since in all Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face-to-face. -face. Moses had a face-to-face -face relationship with God. God would talk directly to Moses during their life. But the Bible also tells us in John chapter 1, verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time. 
the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Jesus had a face-to-face relationship and deeper than that. Very much like, like Moses, from a face-to-face point of view, other men didn't have, the other prophets didn't have. There was no face-to-face discussions going on. But in, in the Old Testament, you find Moses having discussions with God through the cloud. God would descend in a cloud and they'd be having a chat. In the New Testament, we find Jesus having an intimate relationship with his Father. Turn to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, verse 30. When Moses came down off the mountain, the people had sinned unbelievably. They had turned away from God. They had done things that that were absolutely atrocious. And God wanted to destroy them. In verse 30 it says, Exodus 32, 30, And it came to pass the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. You like that? That's a God who was willing to lose his own salvation so his people would be saved. He went to God to make atonement for their sin. He was willing to give his own life for them. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 24. It says, For even hereunto were ye called, Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that he should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who, his own self, bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed." You know something? God didn't allow Moses to die for the sins of the Jews. He, did, he said to Moses, no, they're going to pay for their own sin. But you know what he did with his own son? He said, yes, you're going to pay for them. Jesus came into the world to die for sinners. Jesus came into the world to make atonement for the sins that we've committed. And his own father said, okay, you're going to do it. He didn't allow Moses to do it. But both of them went and were willing to pay the atonement, the cost of atonement. There are so many comparisons here. When they, when they were hungry, when the Israelites were hungry, and Moses asked God that he would feed them, what did he feed them with? He fed them supernaturally with manna that came from heaven. Supernaturally. And then when they complained about that, he gave them quail, supernaturally. Yeah, Jesus was able to feed thousands of people supernaturally. And he gave them bread. And he gave them fish. And he, tra- he, he, he multiplied those things miraculously. In mission, both Jesus and Moses, we could say we're on a specific mission from God. Turn to Numbers chapter 11, verse 25. Numbers chapter 11, verse 25. Numbers chapter 11, verse 25 says, And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him. That's Moses. And took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not see. So Moses 
Oh, God had appointed 70 elders of Israel who, would meant, who were meant to support Moses and to spread the message among the Jews about what God was doing. And God took the spirit that was upon Moses and gave it to them and they prophesied, which means they were speaking exactly what God was talking through them, like a, like a gramophone. Is it a gramophone? Is that what they're called? A bullhorn? What, what are those things called? A megaphone. God was speaking through them like that. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 10. So Moses had 70 elders who were blessed with a spirit that God would, was working through. And look at Luke chapter 10 verse 1. Guess how many disciples Jesus sent out and blessed with his spirit. Luke 10.1 says, After these things the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whether he himself would come. Go down to verse 17. And the 70, after they'd been sent out, came back again. It says, And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I have given unto you the power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Why did Jesus choose 70 disciples to go out? Why did he give them the ability to be able to cast out devils? There is a direct comparison here to what was happening with Moses. Moses had 70 elders who prophesied for him. Jesus has 70 disciples who witnessed for him. And he gave them the Spirit of God. Go back to Exodus chapter 24. Apart from those 70 elders, how many people did Moses bring with him up on the mountain? Let's have a look. Exodus chapter 24. Verse 1. Exodus 24.1 says, And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. How many people did Moses have? He had his seventy elders, and he brought up three specifically named. Turn to Matthew chapter 17 with me. How many people did Jesus bring up on the mountain when he was transfigured? Do you remember? We know them by name. If you guess three, you're, you're, you're a couple of steps ahead of me. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Why did Jesus bring up three? And Moses bring up three. Why did Moses have 70 and Jesus have 70? And Jesus' face shone. Do you know what happened to Moses when he spent 40 days on a mountain with God? The Bible says he came down and his face was glowing. The guy was radioactive after spending all that time with God. And people were so scared of him, he had to put a burqa, a veil, in front of his face. They were scared of him. Now, Moses shone with God's glory. Jesus shone with his own glory. This is the difference, okay? While on the mountain... The Bible says that a cloud came down upon those present. When Jesus, when Jesus um, uh, went up on the mountain, the same thing happened. Don't worry about turning there. I'll, I'll read these out to you. Exodus 19.9, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. Right? So God said to Moses, when you come up, I'm going to come down in a cloud and they're going to hear my voice. And when they hear my voice, they're going to believe you because 
this voice is going to come out of this, of this, uh, of this cloud and they're going to realise it's God talking. The amazing thing is, is in Matthew chapter 17, if you're, if you're still there, Matthew 17 verse 5, it says, And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The same God doing the same thing. And it's for a reason. It's for a reason. Is that when these things happened to Jesus, they were meant to tick the boxes and say, this guy, everything's happening the same way it was happening with Moses. Turn to Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. We're almost, we're almost home. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10 and 11. Now, I find this, this passage quite interesting. I, this is by fluke. I found this one over here. Exodus 19.10 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, get themselves ready for what? And be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. You like that? Why did God choose the third day that he would come down upon the mountain and reveal himself to the people? They literally saw him. They literally saw that heaven opened up. And they couldn't deny the existence of God. What happened on the third day? Mate, there was an empty tomb. You couldn't deny it. They tried to cover it up, but they couldn't do it. God revealed himself through Jesus Christ. As I've mentioned already, the two divisions in the Bible we find are the Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Agreement and the New Agreement. The Old Agreement was delivered by Moses. It was delivered by Moses. God gave this special agreement to Moses. And all these things that happened with Moses were a sign that God was with him and delivering the special message. Now God was delivering a new message, a new agreement. And he was doing it through Jesus. And the fact that most of these things match up most of these things are done exactly the same way, was telling the Jews, this is the same God. This are the, these are the same signs so that you recognise when I'm making this new agreement with you. Because if you look at... Um, go, actually, go to Exodus chapter 24, verse 7. Exodus 24, verse 7. Now, Moses went up to a mountain, spent 40 days with God over there. God gave him the commandments and this new agreement. Moses comes down off the mountain and delivers this agreement to everyone and, and declares it. And how does he seal this agreement? In Exodus 24, verse 7, it says, And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. They agreed to it. They said, we'll follow that. We'll agree to that. And in verse 8, and it says, And Moses took the blood of a bull, and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, the agreement, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. God sealed the covenant, the agreement, the testament with blood. He sprinkled the people with blood and said, this blood signifies the sealing of this agreement. We just read this morning. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had sub saying, this cup is a new testament in my blood. God didn't use the blood of bulls this time. He used the blood of his only son and that blood is sprinkled on people. And when that blood lands on you, it cleans you of all your sins and stains. And it makes you whiter than snow, the Bible says. It's the same way that God institutes a new agreement. He did it exactly the same way, except this time he didn't use the blood of a bull. He used the blood of his son. 
Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, as we wrap up. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. As the writer of Hebrews explains now to us, there is a second covenant and he compares it to the first. If you read before verse 22, um, I'll, I'll encourage you to read that as well because he's comparing both. But in verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 12, it says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which is Jesus, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator, the guy who brings together of the new covenant, and to the blood of a sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, which was Moses, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. You see, God delivered the Old Testament law through Moses. But it says in our day, God delivered this New Testament, this new agreement with his son. If in the Old Testament, if you refused to follow that, those commandments, you were actually killed. You were, you were stoned to death. The warning from Hebrews here is, how much more if you refuse to listen to God himself? If, if, you, if you refuse to listen to the Son of God? He's saying it's much worse. The, the result is much worse. When Jesus was speaking to the Jews and they weren't recognising him as the prophet, they weren't seeing the, 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 the signals, he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, whom you trust. For if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? You see, the Jews are caught in a, in a, in a terrible place at the moment. They refuse to recognise Jesus as the prophet that Moses spoke about. And now they're caught in the middle of nowhere. They have no prophet. They're still waiting for a prophet. But the world, apart from the Jews, has rejected the offer of God, essentially. There are billions who are dying and going to hell. Billions. And only a few will be saved. My challenge to you today is, have you recognised this prophet? Is he your saviour and your Lord? There is salvation in no one else. There is, the Bible says, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. If you have not received Jesus as your saviour, if you haven't looked at the Bible objectively and said, this is an amazing book. Mathematically, it, it, it can't be a coincidence. If you haven't done that, if you haven't given yourself the, the opportunity to hear the message that God is telling you, then you do yourself a great injustice and, and a disservice. Because... The greatest gift you will ever receive in this world is salvation, is eternal life to be with God. The greatest travesty of justice that you can give yourself is to reject an offer of amnesty, is to reject an offer of forgiveness and say, you know something, I'm going to do it my way. You know something, if I'm driving my car down a freeway and I say to myself, I don't care about the speed limit, I'm just going to do it my way. And the police pulls me over. Does it make any difference what I believe about whether the law is right, wrong or any, anything else? It doesn't. It doesn't make one iota of difference what I think about that policeman, what I think about the law, what I think about anything else in our society. If that law is in place, I will be charged guilty for breaking that law. 
If someone says to themselves, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in doing it his way, you know something, you follow that one. Let me tell you, who is the greater lawmaker? The government that we are under their authority? I don't know how many of us have tried to disobey the, the government and the police and everyone else. But how about the ultimate lawmaker? The one who actually created the laws of the universe, every physical, chemical, psychological, moral, and every other law that comes into, in, into play in the universe. How is it that if we can have the guts to say to that, that being who controls everything, mind you, say, I'm going to do it my way. My friends, that's absolute foolishness. Because the Bible says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. We may, we may uh, mock him, we may uh, taunt him, we may choose to live our own lives independent of him. The Bible says that God is not mocked. The Bible says that a man will reap what he sows. And we can laugh and, and, and jump and do whatever we want for these small number of years we have. Whether it's 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and if you live to 100, good luck to you because there are a billion years waiting for you after that. And if you throw away these years that we have, you have something in store for you which you're not going to like. And it will be too late. So God sends the call out now. Please listen to the call. God wills that none should perish. He wants everyone to be saved. He wants everyone safe. And he paid an enormous price to save us. Listen to the call today. Accept Jesus as your saviour. And if you aren't walking the walk today, don't waste your time, please. Live for him. There is no better place to be. God bless you.